This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Good afternoon. I'm Deb Hutton in for News Talk today, this afternoon. Thanks for joining me over this next couple of hours. Now, yesterday when I signed off at 2 o'clock, I had no idea uh, that the uh, Superior Court of Ontario would have ruled on the issue of Bill 124, which is the Ford government's uh, wage restraint bill in the public sector, capping wages to 1% in each of a three-year contract as those contracts came due here in the province. But that, in fact, is what happened. The Justice Mark Conan ruled uh, that the law, uh, Bill 124, was not a reasonable limit on a right and that uh, could not have, it could, was not reasonably, uh, demonstrably justified in a free and democratic side, society. In other words, Bill 124 infringes on the rights and freedoms of association and of collective bargaining. I want to talk about that today with uh, a former at- Deputy Attorney General here in Ontario under both the Liberals and the Conservatives, Paul Bonifero, also a labour lawyer. Welcome to News Talk today. Thanks, Deb. Good morning. So I want to get your take on the Justice's ruling, Justice Mark Conan. I know you've read the decision. Uh, just give us a, and our listeners a, a bit of an overview of, of your take on this particular decision. Well, um, first of all, you know, uh, these courts at uh, what I'll call the lower level, so this is the first attempt to um, uh, challenge this uh, piece of legislation. So it goes to the uh, Ontario Superior Court of Justice, which is the entry level court. Um, But they're all subject to uh, review and appeal, uh, both at the court of appeal level and then if leave, leave to appeal is given at the Supreme Court of Canada level. So you know, the first thing I would say to folks is I wouldn't take this as the final and uh, and end comment by the courts on uh, Bill 124 and uh, and its particular issues around uh, the charter. Um, I, I uh, quite confidently believe you'll see this at the Court of Appeal and likely at the Supreme Court of Canada. I'll also remind you uh, and the listeners that um, in other instances when governments have done this and the lower courts have made these kinds of rulings, you've seen the Supreme Court of Canada uh, actually overturn them and say, no, hold on, Um, here's uh, what our statement is on this piece of the law. So I fully suspect that that's where this is going. Um, And that, um, you know, uh, I would give it a better than 50-50 chance that this is going to be overturned by uh, one of the higher courts. Um, What you see in the decision is uh, the lower court, uh, in this case, Justice Cohn, saying to governments and to uh, uh, the public that when you um, um, infringe on rights, you have to do so very carefully and cautiously, and there has to be a reasonable justification for doing so. It's interesting that this decision is being uh, released in um, November of 2022, when the Act actually was passed and put in force in 2019. And I don't have to remind you, Deb, um, a lot has happened since that time, uh, including a global pandemic. And, you know, judges are human beings. I think this judge made the decision in the current circumstances and uh, under the, you know, the the experience that we had through the pandemic and didn't actually um, transport himself back to 2019 to try to determine what was going on at that time and did the government at that time have a reasonable justification for doing what it did. 
And that's where I think the um, uh, the appeal courts will probably focus a little bit more on, you know, what were the circumstances in 2019 that this government was trying to um, uh, get a handle on. Yeah. Now, you raise a point and, and you say uh, it was a matter of, of time frame. So 2019 versus today on the heels of a pandemic. I actually took it as quite a what I consider political take. And I want to read a passage to you, Paul, and, and our listeners from the decision. Ontario has not, however, explained why it was necessary to infringe on constitutional rights to impose wage constraint at the same time as it was providing tax cuts or license plate sticker refunds that were more than 10 times larger than the savings obtained from wage restraint measures. I read that and it it made me crazy. Like in my view, that is a political argument. I don't understand how that has to do with the law. I realize it is in the context of did you make a, a, a reasonable or did you demonstrate that you were justified in this vis-a-vis the, the charter, but that sounds so political to me and gets into the realm of what I believe is entirely the jurisdiction of legislatures and parliaments in this country. Yeah, I, I think it, uh, it quite frankly is, uh, Deb, and I, I agree with you 100% that uh, when I read that, um, and you know, this happens from time to time, you read through decisions and pieces of it will jump out at you. That same paragraph jumped out at me, um, and also uh, a small paragraph, um, which he puts at the end of the overview, or he rather puts at the end of the overview to say that he's not expressing uh, uh, any critical view about the fiscal policies of the government. Um, and I, I sort of pause there and say, well, no, actually you are hundred <laughs> um, percent making a critical view of the fiscal policies and then goes on to say fiscal prudence and ensuring the sustainability of public services are essential responsibilities of the government, um, which you're saying, you know, again, I say, yeah, hundred percent, that is right. And the courts have to be very careful about trying to judge or assess um, how well governments are doing that. <laughs> um, so it is the the government's fiscal uh, prudence and responsibility uh, to look after the public services and make sure that there's money available for those public services, yet the court will tell them when or when they can't infringe on particular rights. The other thing, and you know, I suspect your callers, uh, this will uh, spark some callers uh, to call in, but you, you note that in this particular piece of legislation, un- unlike a recent piece of legislation by this government, um, they have not invoked the um, uh, the notwithstanding clause, and you know I I think that says two things, and uh, you know I'm not commenting specifically on whether or not the government had that advice at the time of this legislation because I was the deputy attorney general, so I'll be very cautious about that. But when governments don't use the notwithstanding clause, I I think generally that sends a signal that they're quite confident that they've been given advice that this is this is prudent and uh and uh possible to do under under the constitution and the charter and um you know you sort of sit here and scratch your head when when uh lower courts overturn decisions like this and say well you're just poking governments to actually invoke the the notwithstanding clause every time they do this because you, you otherwise they're subject to your review court and 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 you know they they um wouldn't be able to carry out their fiscal responsibility without doing so. So that's just another interesting twist to this saga. I think that this this bill doesn't have the notwithstanding clause um, uh, uh, invoked. Yeah, but to your point, we may we may that may be the irony of this entire exercise that I think it it gets to the point where at least people like me say 
If it's not the government's responsibility, if it's not the government's authority to do things like uh, set wage restraints for their direct employees, then that puts the the public policy realm squarely with the Supreme Court. And I'm not comfortable with that. That's not the system I think that we have. I just want to flip quickly to the political point, too. I, I checked out this justice who was uh, Mark Conan, who was appointed in 2017. And I found 17 individual, some of the maximum contributions to the Liberal Party of Canada prior to his appointment. Is that unusual in your view? I know you've been involved in, in uh, the appointment of justices of the peace as deputy attorney general for both the Liberals and the Conservatives. Is this uncommon? Is this fairly regular that you would have a judge that would be partisan enough that they would make that many contributions? And I'm sorry, I'm running out of time. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fine. And the answer is no, it's not that uncommon. Uh, in fact, you know, judges before becoming judges are lawyers uh, and citizens of, uh, of the province and of the country and are free to belong to political parties. And they do so in many instances. Um, I think this one is particularly um, startling in the sense of the number and the amounts and uh, the proximity to his appointment. But... You know, at the end of the day, uh, Deb, uh, these are our political appointments uh, uh, for any party that, uh, that appoints judges. And, you know, judges are humans and they can't help themselves from being political. So, Paul Benefero, I'm going to have to let you go. Thanks so much. After the break, we'll take your calls. I'm Deb Hutton. It's News Talk Today. Well, I think in this case, they felt that they, they needed the law because they were facing circumstances prior to COVID that were warranted this kind of approach to the healthcare system. I think COVID has changed things, but for the integrity of the legislature to be able to pass laws dealing with these matters, they actually do have to appeal. And it's got to go to the Supreme Court and it's going to be an important case to watch. It's what's happening right now. This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. I'm Deb Hutton. That was the voice of Lisa Raitt, former uh, MP here in Ontario in the federal parliament, talking on uh, More in the Morning, hosted by Jerry Agar this morning, about the need for legislatures to have what she called legislative integrity. And I am 100% in agreement with Lisa Raitt. I'm having trouble, based on the decision that uh, came down yesterday over Bill 124, Swallowing the fact that we seem, in my view, to have judges who are getting into the legislative realm. But I want to take your calls on this, not on the Bill 124, good or bad, but on the notion of what is supreme here. Is it the legislative ability, the parliamentary ability to make decisions of a fiscal nature for its citizens as a duly elected body here in our democracy? Or should superior courts, Supreme Courts, in this uh, case where this will likely end up, uh, whether they hear it or not, that probably is the path it's about to take, are they getting into jurisdiction that they shouldn't be in as part of our system? one 633 1010. Give me a call. What's your view on this? A couple of things jumped out at me, uh, as I said in the last segment on this decision. And I want to read this decision again, one part of it that really, really jumped out at me. Ontario has not, however, explained why it was necessary to infringe on constitutional rights to impose wage constraint at the same time as it was providing tax cuts 
or license plate sticker refunds that were more than 10 times larger than the savings obtained from wage restraint measures. I'm sorry, but that looks to me like an opposition member's objection to Bill 124, not a justice decision around Bill 124. one 1010 Where is that strict line between courts making decisions based on our Charter of Rights and Freedoms and governments of all levels, uh, provincially and federally, being able to have the authority and the power as duly elected bodies in this province in this country in all provinces let's go to sunny in richmond hill sunny what do you say about this well i, I just can't seem to follow your logic okay you know, conservatives used to call these things activist judges yeah you know, when they 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 use those, those terms activist judges but that is our justice system you you uh, because i can use the reverse to you and tell you that the people the people of this province have the right to collective bargaining in the constitution. So why do you question? Don't you question that with the provincial government and tell say that they should not have done this in terms of trying to save money on the backs of of, of workers? That is the problem. But Sunny, just let me put something on the table for you, okay? So in Manitoba last month, the Supreme Court of Canada said it wouldn't hear an appeal from the unions over a 2017 Manitoba wage restraint bill. So they actually said Manitoba, by not hearing the final appeal, was within its rights to have a wage restraint bill. Yet yeah, here we have a judge saying it's not within the provincial government of Ontario's right to have a wage restraint bill. You see, Deb, what I can't seem to understand, when conservatives use the argument, and they lose the argument immediately when they use it by saying that this judge has contributed to the Liberal Party. I wonder how many conservative judges has contributed to the Conservative Party. Well, I asked the Deputy Attorney General, and he said many. It is part of our system. Yeah. So that argument is moot. So why do you use it? The point that you're making about Manitoba, each province has its own jurisdiction, uh, I, I would say, judicial system. Yeah, but this is, this is the Supreme Court of Canada, Sonny, who decided uh, that they would let the decision stand. So why don't we let the, 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 the case run its course and see what the Supreme Court will say about this case? Because I assume that in Manitoba, the same argument wasn't used to say that their people cannot, under the Constitution, bargain. Okay. So there's nuances in, in, in every situation. So that is why I say we want to demonize people when they have a specific job. Their job is to judge. And and, and when the judge makes a a decision against us, then we want to say the judge is to blame. No, we look at the root cause and the government is to blame because they exceeded their power. Okay, Sonny, I'm going to move on. Thank you for the point. I'm going to go to Adam in North Bay. Adam, what's your view on this? Well, uh, my view is that there's never a reason to circumvent the Constitution. Uh, I never. That's why we have one. It's to protect the minority from the majority. And what you want is to bring back majority uh, rule. Um, basically, whenever the government doesn't like some minority, it will bring in a legislation and say, we're going to go over them. And that's why we needed a constitution, because we were constantly seeing uh, mob rule. And so I, you know, so you're, you're uh, calling public servants in this province a minority? 
I'm calling anybody, any worker is a minority when they're, they're the minority because supposedly the government represents 14 million people to 300,000 people. Okay. Thanks, Adam. Let's go to Bruce in Barrie. Bruce, what's your view on this? Oh, sorry. I think I hit the wrong. Bruce, have I got you? Yes, you have. Okay, go ahead. The reason they are called judges is because they're, just, they're, they're put in a position to judge the law. They're not put in a position to give political comments. And, and like you, I found it very distasteful that this judge would have made such comments standing in the way of stating the fact that uh, what the Ontario government is doing in regards to other payments. It's none of his business to do that. Let him be a judge. And if he can't judge properly, then he shouldn't be on the bench. That's, these are not political appointments. These are supposedly, and these are people who are called to interpret the law. And that's my comment. All right. Thanks for that, Bruce. Appreciate it. one 1010 Give me a shout. Are you okay with this judgment as it relates to the rule of the, of the courts versus the authority of our elected governments, whether it's provincial or federal jurisdiction? Let's go to Kevin in Toronto. Go ahead, Kevin. Oh, we're missing Kevin. Uh, let's go to Dayron in Ajax. Hi, Deb. How are you? I'm good. What's your thought on this? Yeah, so I read that that case as well, and you know, I followed the hearings uh, while uh, it was going on, and I listened to some of the arguments, and I read the decision, and I think, you know, from my interpretation, I think the judge was basically saying that. Wage restraint legislations are not fitted in themselves. It's just specific restriction at 1% didn't mirror free collective bargaining. So if Ford said, okay, well, the wage, res- wage restraint is 4%, well, that might be lawful if an actual union negotiated 4% in real-world situations. So the wage restraint seemed to be too low. That's really what he was talking about, I think. But is that not, take the word political out of it, which I've been using, is that not a policy perspective as opposed to a legal perspective? Like my, my concern with the quote that I've read a couple of times this morning is that it, it seemed to be making a judgment about the government's policy in, in the context of the government's overall approach to its fiscal plan. Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't think he was making a a judgment on policy. And I think even in the decision, he said, you know, the Supreme Court of Canada has said judges and courts shouldn't comment on the government's policy and budgetary sort of considerations. So I feel like he didn't really focus on that too much, but I think he said wage restraints are allowed if they seem to be fair and mirror some kind of free bargaining. That's all that's all I interpret. All right. I appreciate that interpretation. I would say then that is uh, judicial opinion as opposed to uh, anything else. I'm sorry for those people we had to leave on the uh, call screen, but it is time to move on. Coming up after the break, I'm going to talk about endangered species. Apparently, we have quite a few here in Ontario. I'm going to chat with a representative of the World Wildlife Fund of Canada to see what we can and should be doing about it. You're listening to News Talk Today. I'm Deb Hutton on the iHeartRadio Network. Keeping you informed daily. 
It's News Talk today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Deb Hutton. Thanks for joining me this afternoon. Uh, Tomorrow, actually, I am not going to be here, but my friend Graham Richardson from CTV Ottawa will be filling in from noon to two on News Talk today. There's a, a new report out on the status of wild species in Canada. It catalogs more than 50,000 species and warns that 2,000 of them, more than 2,000, face a high risk of being wiped out. Joining me this afternoon to talk about this is James Snyder, Vice President of Science, Knowledge and Innovation for World Wildlife Fund Canada. James, welcome to News Talk today. Hi, Deb. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me on. So I actually was not familiar with this report, the Wild Species Report, that I understand comes out every five years. This is the fifth in, I'll call it the series, but the fifth time that that this has been done. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the report? Because this is a compilation of of different levels of government and, and different folks who are involved in this. Yeah, exactly right. This is a national compilation based on the provinces and the territories coming together with the federal government and science scientists really across the country to create an assessment of wild species in Canada. Uh, this report, the 2020 report, includes over 50,000 species. That's a large number of species. I think it's more than twice the size of the previous report. It's a major scientific undertaking and really brings together knowledge from across the country to understanding of the status of wildlife, including plants and animals, fungi, um, really a systematic inventory on the status of those species. So you just touched at the very end there on, on what is included, because I when I think species, I think animals, but that's obviously not the, the full picture. Yeah, so it does include animals, includes mammals, includes amphibians and reptiles, many of those species that come to mind to us right off the bat, but it also includes plants, it includes fungi, it includes insects and other invertebrates. So it is really quite a catalog. The report is, you know, more than 350 pages long, is a huge amount of information in the report. But to me, what's most striking, you know, sifting through all that information is that the fact that there are quite a large number of species of wildlife of plants and animals in Canada now that are considered imperiled that are considered to be of conservation risk conservation significance and I think that number as you said more than 2,000 species that's eye-opening for many and and to me raises this this point which is so important which is biodiversity loss the loss of species in some cases actual extirpation or, or an, an extinction of species is that risk of happening here in Canada? And then we have seen the extirpation of a couple species in Canada in our lifetimes. Give me an example of those. Well, the black-footed ferret is an example of a species that has been a focus of conservation effort in our prairie provinces that is considered extirpated or lost from Canada. Um, and so there are efforts underway to actually bring back through captive breeding programs to bring these species back to recover and restore those populations. Um, but one of the key points that I think that has, has been true in our experience in conservation in Canada and probably around the world is that it's, it's far easier to protect species to go from extinction than to bring them back from the edge of, you know, from edge of the brink. Um, and, and to me, that's such a reminder of the uh, important urgency that we have in the moment when this kind of science comes forward is that we need to act in response to that, to take meaningful change, to implement new po- uh, policies and programs that actually address the root cause of the loss of biodiversity here in Canada. 
Now, I, I did read that the bulk of wild species in this country are, are concentrated in Ontario, BC, and Quebec. Is there a reason for that? So patterns of biodiversity, of, of the diversity of, of species, you know, it's driven by the productivity of those ecosystems. And there's a very strong north-south gradient in Canada in terms of species diversity. We, we have more species as a whole in the southern part of our country than we do in the north. That doesn't diminish the importance of, of those species that are found in the north. There's quite remarkable species like caribou, let's say, that you know range through many of our northern territories. But from a, a sheer uh, diversity or number of, of species perspective, we do see more here in the southern part of the country. Southern Ontario has a very high number of species. Uh, and we do see quite a diversity of species in places like BC, where there's a very uh, heterogeneous uh, landscape, you know, a lot of different types of habitat and ecosystems that go alongside that. And so in, it's in those places where we see a greater diversity or, or number of species. I'm chatting with uh, James Snyder, who is the Vice President of Science, Knowledge and Innovation for World Wildlife Canada, uh, as we look at a report that is out cataloging 50,000 wild species and warning that more than 2,000 of them here in Canada face a high risk of being wiped out. One of the other things I, I read in this report is that 105 of these species that are at risk only exist in Canada. Yes, to me, it's a question of what we call um, endemic species. So those species that are found almost entirely um, and solely in Canada. And so therefore, in Canada, we have the responsibility for their long-term conservation, stewardship, and protection. And there are, as you say, more than 100 species identified in this report that are only found here in Canada, and a number of them are at risk. Uh, one example of that is the Vancouver Island Marmot, a species that's only found in Canada and has been the focus of conservation efforts for a number of years to ensure that that species continues to be here for future generations. And so these endemic species, these, you know, they really are at the core of our conservation efforts, knowing that no other nation, no other country really um, can, can take the necessary actions to ensure that these species persist into the future. And well, I appreciate, because we are not talking just animals, obviously, as you, as you outlined, we're talking other types of, of species. Uh, every effort would look a little bit different. Just in a general sense, what is it that we can and should be doing and, and why is it so important? Well, for me, I think there's really three major categories of conservation action that need to be driven forward, you know, for complex ecosystem protection, right? So not only does it include these wildlife populations and these in these species, many cases, mammals, amphibians and reptiles that we've been, been chatting about, but also um, our forests and plant ecosystems, our wetlands and beyond. Um, for those ecosystems to be stewarded for years to come and for future generations, we need to look at three things. One, of course, is large-scale protections. And um, certainly we've heard a lot from the government of Canada recently in terms of major commitments that we've made on a global stage towards large-scale protections. Um, we've committed uh, to protect 25% of our lands and waters by 2025 towards 30% projection by 2030. And that's a really ambitious goal and where Canada, I think, has situated ourselves as a leader on a global stage in terms of advancing protection of these important places, of those ecosystems, of those habitats that are home to the species that we've really discussed in this wild species report. 
Um, furthermore, I think as part of that ambition, we need to be ensuring it's done in a rights-based way, one that supports Indigenous people's rights and priorities. And that's a big part of our conversation now in Canada is the, the role of Indigenous-led conservation. Furthermore, and I think on the other side of the equation, is broad-scale restoration of degraded ecosystems, of those ecosystems that have been impacted by our human footprint. And there are more than 600 species in Canada that have been designated officially by the government of Canada as at risk. And so have, you know, a regulatory requirement for the recovery of those species. Um, and that to me, you know, requires broad scale restoration activities um, to really bring back those habitats, those ecosystems that have been negatively impacted over in some cases, generations. And is that a government exercise? What, what does that look like? In my mind, it's, it's really kind of a combination of things. I, I think it starts with the government policies and programs to enable the conditions, to provide funding to support those programs. But the other side to it, and I, what I also find is quite inspiring, is the kind of grassroots local um, community action-based efforts um, that can happen on private land, that can happen on, on public land as well, to take on the, the necessary restoration activities to bring back those habitats. And that needs to be continued over, in some cases, many years to bring back these species, especially those that are on the, the brink of extinction that are highlighted in the report that we're discussing today. James Snyder, World Wildlife Fund, we thank you for your time and your insight into this issue. Coming up after the break, I want to take your calls, 1-855-633-1010. Danielle Smith's Alberta Sovereignty Legislation, yay or nay? I move first reading of Bill 1, the Alberta Sovereignty Within the United Canada Act. It's News Talk today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Deb Hutton, your host today for News Talk Today. That was Alberta Premier Danielle Smith in their legislature yesterday when she rose to introduce her government's first piece of legislation. As you heard, she calls it the uh, Alberta Sovereignty Within a United Canada Act received first reading in the legislature. No surprise that we saw this as the first piece of legislation to be introduced uh, into the legislature since Danielle Smith became the Premier of Alberta. Uh, she spent her campaign when she became party leader in October, fighting back against Ottawa, decrying their COVID-19 public health measures. And this is uh, as strong as she campaigned, I would argue, uh, although folks thought having become premier, she might water it down a little bit. Here's the question I want to ask you at 1-855-633-1010. 1 is this simply a very hyper-partisan premier of Alberta who is uh, using politics to bash Ottawa, uh, a lifetime uh, activity for those in Alberta? Is that what it's about? Or is there something deeper here? Is this evidence of a country that's actually not working? that's not working well within our constitution. We just spent the last uh, beginning of the show, the first half hour of our show, talking about the Supreme Court uh, and its rulings, the Superior Court in Ontario's most recent ruling on Bill 124, the use of the notwithstanding clause, of course, we've seen in Ontario and in Quebec, all could point to those things as evidence that the way our federation is set up is not working today in 2022. 
Or as I said, is it just politics? And this is likely to be the kind of thing that we're going to see and really isn't any different than we've seen in the past. 1-855-633-1010. Give me a call. Is this something you'd like to see in other parts of the of the country? Is this something that you would... So, I mean, obviously, sovereignty has a different connotation in the province of Quebec and certainly has for a long time. There has been a, a move afoot over different decades in Alberta to actually uh, leave the country, as, as I said, as there has been in Quebec. But this is uh, certainly a poke at the federal government. If you're not familiar with the legislation, what it essentially does is it says that if at any time the federal government passes a law, a policy, or a program, and I think that is a nod uh, to the the COVID-19 mandates, if, if the federal government does that and the Alberta government doesn't like it, then the premier or a cabinet minister will bring a motion to the floor of the legislature declaring the federal initiative to be unconstitutional. And if uh, it's passed by the assembly, and certainly in in the current makeup of the Alberta legislature, there's a majority of uh, Ms. Smith's party, then the provincial cabinet would have extraordinary powers to change any existing legislation that's necessary to counter the federal piece of legislation, policy, or initiative. 1-855-633-1010. Give me your thoughts. Is this just partisan politics? Alberta fed up with uh, Ottawa and this is a a, a crafty way for the premier of the day who's facing re-election in just a few months uh, to poke Ottawa, which is is a sport by so many folks in Alberta. Are we really at a crisis point, given everything that has been happening in the last number of years with the notwithstanding clause, uh, with some concerns out of Quebec heightened again more recently in our country? Let's go to Terry in Mississauga. Terry, what's your thought on this? My thought on this is that there's nothing in this country right now that's working. Look around. Look around you right now. It is just terrible. Everything is in disarray. It's about time uh, one of the provinces started doing something about this. Really, to tell you the truth, I think Alberta should be um, uh, um, uh, um, uh, d- digging uh, for a friggin' oil, putting up their own pipelines, even um, uh, getting out of Canada and changing the Constitution. And, and believe me, um, if they do that, they're going to see a lot of people going to Alberta. All right. Thanks for that, Terry. Terry raises a point, actually, that I do want to raise, which is, is it time for us to open up the Constitution, that horrible exercise that takes forever and takes uh, every government's focus off the day-to-day important issues that every province and our national government faces? But is that the outcome of this? Should we be re-looking at the Constitution? Let's go to Neil in Niagara. Neil, what's your thought on this? Is this a country that is a mess or... Or is this just Alberta politics and and good partisanship on Danielle Smith's part? No, this country's constitution is broken. As long as Quebec can be uh, special and do things differently versus the rest, it's a mess. For example, if uh, Trudeau continues with his new expanded uh, gun buyback plan uh, for shotguns and rifles, I'd like to see Ontario do what Alberta is doing and not enforce it. I'd like to see Ontario... Um, go down this path to, you know, keep the feds in check. The provinces have their own rights and their own areas of jurisdiction, and there has to be more of a, 
you know, working together between the feds and the provinces. Uh, healthcare is another example. But with Alberta um, in their natural resources, you know, Quebec and particularly as uh, preventing a plan coming east, which could be helping one, our country, but also could be helping the nations in Europe. And it's gotten too political. Um, look at the notwithstanding clause. Justin Trudeau jumped all over Ford, but, you know, doesn't say anything about Quebec. So it's broken. We need to have a reset between the relationship between the provinces and the feds. Neil, can I ask you, if if you had an option, would you rather see Ontario, for example, as you said at the outset, uh, head down this sovereignty path that Alberta is, or would you rather us open up the Constitution and find a more workable solution for today? I think it's actually a two-step process. I think in order to force the discussion around opening the Constitution, the provinces have to reassess or reassert their rights, and this is doing it. Now, the one thing I would change is... You know, the way that she's got the legislation currently written, it's a little bit too um, much control in the cabinet. I think, you know, if uh, Ontario goes down the path, which I hope they do, it would be more of a go to the legislature, go to, uh, you know, the Ontario Parliament and uh, say, this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing. This is the full scope and nothing outside of that. Get it approved in the legislature and you move forward with it. Um that's how it should be done, so everything is transparent and out in the open. But we need to assert the provincial rights to push back when the feds are overstepping. All right, Neil, thanks for the call. Very thoughtful analysis on that. Alan in London, I got about 30 seconds for you. What's your take on this? Okay, it's, uh, it is partisan politics for sure, but let's face it, provinces have always had conflicting uh, interests with, uh, than the federal government. I think right now what's going on is a symptom of a prime minister who is very uh, uneven about which provincial jurisdictions he's going to make comments on and which ones he's not. And your previous caller mentioned, you know, Trudeau's uh, tendency to mention Ford uh, and the constitutionality of his bill. But if a teacher gets fired for wearing a hijab, he says absolutely nothing. So if you want to unify a country, you need to treat all provinces equally. All right, Alan, thank you for that. Uh, interesting conversation. Wish we actually had more time. Although I will say, coming up after the uh, 1 o'clock news, it's my favorite time of the week on News Talk today. It is The War Room, where some of our uh, political watchers, our pundits, and in one case, a former politician, gets to chat about the issues at hand. We will talk about the Alberta legislation and much more. You're listening to News Talk today. I'm Deb Hutton on the iHeartRadio Network. Here's what you need to know. This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Deb Hutton. It is my favorite time of the week on News Talk Today. It is time for the word. Let me be perfectly clear. Putting out misinformation. And we hear that. Misleading politics. What's really important here. Spreading it online. Unequivocally. The War Room. And joining us in our war room today, Zane Velchi, a political campaign strategist and partner at North Weather. He formerly worked with Calgary Mayor Nahid Nenshi and Alberta NDP leader Rachel Notley. 
Tom Mulcair, CTV political analyst and former NDP leader, and Tim Powers, chairman of Summa Strategies and managing director of Abacus Data. So I am going to go right to you, Zane, off the top. We have Alberta sovereignty within a United Canada Act, provincial ability to disregard federal laws, policies, and programs if Alberta doesn't like it. And on the heels of that, we had former Premier Jason Kenney stepped down, citing, uh, and I will quote, I am concerned that our democratic life is veering away from ordinary prudential debate towards a polarization that undermines our bedrock institutions and principles. I also uh, will like just uh, give us a second to listen to Danielle Smith, the current Premier and, and author, I think, of this legislation to hear what she had to say. A long and painful history of mistreatment and constitutional overreach from Ottawa has for decades caused tremendous frustration for Albertans. In response, we are finally telling the federal government, no more. It's time to stand up for Alberta. So Zane, uh, our federal, our, our, um, our Alberta folk out there, I'm going to let you take this wherever you want. What are your thoughts on what happened yesterday in your province? Uh, my, my thoughts are simple, Deb. Uh, I am declaring sovereignty from this free <laughs> dramatic theatrical program that the rest of you have gotten to observe for free. I'm going to start charging tickets for this theater because <laughs> this is wild. And I mean, listen, I've been through a decade in, in Alberta politics that has seen ups and downs and accidental governments, some might say, to uh, everything. But yesterday, uh, let's look at let's look at this piecemeal was supposed to be the day that Danielle Smith, our new premier, went mainstream with the Sovereignty Act, dialed it down, sanded down the edges, didn't ha make it necessarily a, a, a item that could be she, her political uh, opponents could bludgeon her with. Uh, but she didn't do that. She actually added extraordinary powers, had very limited rationale and justification for them, said cabinet can now not just do regulations, but we're just going to casually allow them to make their own laws. What? And then simultaneously, you see the former premier leave his seat to send a very clear message to her, who's now the leader of his party, the party that he founded, this being Jason Kenney, of course, that that he's done with this, that this is not his cup of tea. And so what we're going to see over the course of the next couple of weeks in Alberta politics might be unprecedented in the sense of the constitutional affair. And I have to always disclose this as my mother-in-law is the lieutenant governor here in Alberta, but her role will become more important. The role of the courts will become more important. The federal response will become more important. We are in for a ticketed event here in Alberta that, that's only just beginning, uh, especially on the day when Danielle Smith was supposed to mainstream this and put it to bed. She clearly has no either ability or desire to do so. Tom Melcare, you watch these things very carefully, and you come from our other province that does a lot our of Our other uh, sovereign <laughs> province? <laughs> does a lot of crazy things sometimes. Uh, interested in your take on it. I know you've you've chatted a lot today about this topic. So again, I'll let you I'll let you go wherever you want on this broad topic. Well, I had to chuckle because I actually I watched it a few times because I wanted to make sure I was getting what she was saying. And I had to chuckle when I heard Danielle Smith put a lot of emphasis and repeat emphasis on guns and fertilizer. I, I just thought that that was so Canadian of her, eh? So yes, this is the big thing because the federal government is trying to take away people's guns that they've acquired legitimately. And of course, they're also trying to come in with a norm to reduce greenhouse gases on fertilizer. I think that on both of those points, she's doing something that is very shocking 
she's being a politician. She knows exactly who she's talking to. She's talking to farmers in Alberta about their fertilizer. She's talking to gun owner, owners on the prairie, and in particular in her province about guns and the horrible federal government. So she senses Rachel Notley breathing down her back. Rachel Notley was in power the last time around, has pretty good numbers. It's going to be a big fight. And of course, Notley cannot follow her down this yellow brick road. So it's fun. I'll say one thing, and it's in line with what, um, with what Zane just said. It's no small irony that the whole purpose of this, and she repeated it over again, over again, is to tell Ottawa to stay in your lane. But you see, laws are the exclusive jurisdiction, they are the lane way of legislatures, of elected people. She wants to give the powers to make and unmake laws to her hand-picked cabinet, the executive branch. And she, in doing so, explains why she said things like, Russia was was in the rights in, in its conflict with in its illegal war it's prosecuting and the war crimes that, that go with it against Ukraine she, she doesn't understand that you've got to be consequential when you put this sort of big piece on the table somebody should have helped her and she obviously didn't care because she's playing a pure political game so Tim Powers you come from the sleepy part of the country not Alberta not Quebec so you you will have a different perspective on this i'm hoping what do you say Sleepy? Come on, geez, you know Chris Breen. Are we Newfoundlanders sleepy, Deb? You know that that is not true by any stretch of the imagination. And you, you, you were saying that, it was, I was listening to, to uh, my colleagues talk and, and, and your questions. I think Danielle Smith is doing the Brian Peckford. Now, you and Tom and I may remember Brian Zane, still too young, but Brian Peckford, of course, the Newfoundland Premier in the, in the 80s, who got in great dust-ups with, um, with Pierre Trudeau, Justin's father, and then even Brian Mulroney changed the Newfoundland flag, felt Newfoundland and Labrador had been oppressed, uh, played off the, uh, the, 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 the themes of nationalism that were so prominent in our province then, won a couple of elections, then got his teeth handed to him. Well, he didn't. He stepped down by some guy named Clyde Wells and led us into that whole constitutional crisis in the early 1990s. Look, Danielle has a willing audience. I think Tom has spoken about this before in relation to Francois Legault. Prime Minister Trudeau is not going to engage him. He, it's almost like in the case of Alberta, he's letting her go so far out on a ledge that it will be impossible for her to come back, as Zane has described. And the last point I'd make is I listened to her talk about Alberta's oppression as she feels it and says others do. It just reminds me she's so disconnected when it comes to the history of this country. And you remember she mm -hmm. got in trouble about this before. If Alberta has been oppressed, can I have some of that oppression, please? Because there are real groups, real peoples who have suffered in this country, not the province of Alberta. So, Tom, I'm going to go back to you on this one because I, I took some calls uh, be, before uh, we started this segment. And I asked the question, you know, is this just good politics, as we've been discussing? Is this just her speaking to a specific base? Or is it really the, the kind of tip of the iceberg that it is time for us to look more broadly at how our country is working vis-a-vis -vis the notwithstanding clause and, and uh, God forbid, opening up all of those constitutional decisions? Like, is there something more here or is it just as we've been talking raw politics in Alberta? No, there is still a very strong feeling in Western Canada that they have not been treated correctly. Yeah. I remember I was working in Manitoba at the time that the CF-18 maintenance contract, and back in the day, we're going decades ago, that was hundreds of millions of dollars. It was taken away from Bristol Aerospace, the lowest bidder in Winnipeg, and handed over to Canada and Montreal just because. Yeah. 
And I, I remember the sentiment, you know, at the office, people were just saying, I can't believe that they just did that. So there's been a lot of that. But at the same time, you've got to pick your fights and pick your recrimination. Because in her speech <laughs> that I watched probably one time too many, I, I heard Daniel Smith say this, that they've landlocked our resources. Well, I can tell you that everybody that I know in Montreal that pays their taxes and everybody I know in Ottawa and in Toronto and in every other city in Canada is helping to pay a $25 billion bill when Trudeau bought the, the Kinder Morgan pipeline. It, it was quite clear that all Canadians were going to pay for this thing to unlock the oil from the oil sands and get it to the Pacific coast. So how all of a sudden that Trans Mountain pipeline just doesn't exist. And this is Ottawa, again, trying to landlock our resources. It doesn't even resist the slightest analysis. So if you're going to play that game where you get to say, oh, boo-hoo, this is awful, we're always being badly treated, you better get your facts straight because people across the country are scratching their heads saying, well, what are you talking about when you say they're intentionally landlocking your resources? That's Tom Mulcair along with Zane Velchi and Tim Powers, our war room this afternoon. Coming up after the break, we're going to go back and talk about the Emergencies Act, last week's problem, last week's crisis, well, or going forward. I'm Deb Hutton. This is News Talk Today. You're listening to the iHeart Radio Network. Staying on the story. News Talk Today continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm your host, Deb Hutton. It's that time of the week where we are joined by three smart political watchers in what we call the war room. Joining us this afternoon, Zane Velchi, political campaign strategist and partner at Northweather. He formerly worked with Calgary Mayor Nenshi and Alberta NDP leader Rachel Notley. Tom Mulcair, CTV political analyst and former NDP leader nationally. And Tim Powers, chairman of Summa Strategies and managing director of Abacus Data. So last Friday, it feels like weeks ago to me, but last Friday, uh, the public component of the testimony into the inquiry uh, into the federal government's use of the Emergency Act wrapped up. We have another couple of months likely to go until we see the justice report on this. But I want to ask you guys today, do you think the federal government did what it needed to do? And I'll say both, you know, technically and legally to make its case for invoking the Emergencies Act, but also politically, regardless of what the mm. judge rules. Do you think politically they made their case to the voters of this province. Uh, Tim, why don't I start with you on this one? I, I think if it was a comparative exercise, so if you compared the federal government's offerings uh, to what you saw from the convoy lawyers and participants, then yes, but that was a layup for them, Deb. Um, don't forget, just about every public poll that I've seen showed them at about 60 to 70 percent support for taking action in relation to the uh, to the convoy protest that took place here. To be fair, I think um, Justin Trudeau gave one of his better, if not best, performances um, as a prime minister in responding for five and a half hours. He must have listened to us. I'm going to take the credit on our end because we counseled to be um, informative and not performative and uh, engaged and not overreaching. And I think he did all of that. I think they generally had a good week. Um, so I think they've. I, I think whatever the outcome is, they've probably won right now in the court of public opinion. But did they win over Justice Rouleau? I don't know. Um, again, Tom, with his legal expertise and experience, could speak to this better than I can. But um, I, I don't know that they've proven the finer points of the law. And if you look um, at the prime minister's answer 
the thing that still answers, I should say, the thing that still stands out for me was, well, I couldn't afford not to act. I don't know if that constitutes the legal precedent to act. Tom Mulcair. Well, really well stated by Tim. I'll stick with your third point because you asked technically, legally. I think that those are pretty much what Tim just described. I'll go on to the politically. There was one one weak element, although I agree with Tim on that as well, that Trudeau's performance was outstanding. And if I was his lawyer, I would have been really happy with what he had just done. But it's the question of David Lametti, our Attorney General and Justice Minister, his secret legal opinion. That stuck in the craw of Mr. Justice Rouleau. But Rouleau also tipped his hand a little bit at the end because about halfway through Trudeau's testimony, he said, okay, I've got what I need. Or I, you know, he, he clearly understood Trudeau's point, which was when we got there, we had no choice but to do this. Where Rouleau might dig in a little bit, and I still think it's the open question, but I think he would be right to say, look, we didn't necessarily have to get to the point where there was no other option. If the police had done their work earlier in the city of Ottawa, if things had been done differently, maybe we wouldn't have needed to hit this thing with a sledgehammer. I think that that's probably going to be his Solomon's, you know, wisdom on this thing. With regard to Lametti, I mean, coming in, saying that you gave legal advice and then saying, but it's subject to solicitor client, Trudeau missed one opportunity, which was to say, oh, well, that works out okay because I'm the client and I'm going to list, lift that privilege. And here's what Lametti told us. But of course, we're still in the dark as to what, if anything, Lametti ever said. Zane Velshi, your thoughts on on either or both of those tests that the the government probably hoped to meet? I just want to recreate that Lametti Mendocino friendship. Those text messages <laughs> reveal a bromance that I long for in my life, Deb, and one day I hope to find. I cannot agree more on the Trudeau appearance. Not only to Tim's point was he informative and not performative, he actually brought a muscle that many for the last decade, I think it's fair to say, didn't know he had. He was substantive. So both on the actual presentation of that five and a half hour marathon, did he present well and inform and 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 was calm and forthright, but he had substance. He had he had understanding of the domain on the legal threshold. He could talk about what that looked like, how his decision was made. He kind of showed his work. And it was work mentally and otherwise. Uh, and, and he showed it to us. Here's what I was thinking, the alternative choices. I can't emphasize how important it was that the prime minister batted how well he did on cleanup, because I have to say the rest of the testimony, you mentioned Lametti, kind of weak. You mentioned Mendocino. He skated by ish. Freeland, I didn't think do, did particularly well, but the prime minister batting cleanup the way he did, he didn't necessarily have to give that great performance if, if you'd had those other ministers perform, but he did with the circumstances he had leading up to Friday and did he deliver. And so I think he solidifies the public opinion argument. I think from his perspective, this had become with some of those lines, you could see a battle for public opinion and to solidify it. So even if the case is perhaps, quote unquote, lost on legal grounds, that that 70 percent remain there and you can brush it under the rug and move on as he has with other situations. Uh, so I think he did himself quite a service with both being substantive and also perhaps solidifying, putting in stone that 60 to 70 percent of the public that said, you know, we needed to take action and him batting cleanup maybe kind of helped with some of that. But we'll see if if, if the, the legal ruling aligns with with perhaps this PR victory that, that the prime minister, I'd say, more so than anyone helped engineer 
over the yeah. course of the last week. Yeah, Zaid, I got to say, I probably agree with you 100% on all of that. And and my only question was, why didn't he do it earlier? Because he really defended the government's decision and he defined the motive of the convoy. And I thought those two things, if he had done weeks and months ago, he would have even been in a, in a better position. But depending on what the, the judge rules, mm. I guess one of my questions is, uh, I shouldn't say depending, regardless of what the judge rules, do you think that we will see some legislative changes to the yep. Emergencies Act? And I'll start with yep. you, Tim. Or Tom, is that Tom you saying that? That's, that's Tom. I'll give you one example, yeah. and then I'll, we'll go on to the colleagues. <laughs> we have, uh, right now, there's a commission of inquiry into the, the exams for the nursing profession. Sounds very far away from this, but in the law, it says you cannot invoke or use as a, a shield an argument based on professional secrecy. Rulo, I am convinced, is going to say, don't put another judge through this nonsense of bringing them into a commission of inquiry and then being told, oh, sorry, it's professional secrecy, solicitor client privilege. I can't tell you what the advice was. So he's going to say, make sure that that no longer exists. That's the type of recommendation I'm expecting from Rulo. Um, yeah, yeah, but look, I, I was sorry. I was just going to say, of course, you're going to get. I think we always get them uh, out of inquiries. You know what I recall in sport, key performance indicators, and the governments are going to get a new set of them as it relates to all of this, and they'll be updated, I guess, under the circumstances. But I'll give you this free KPI for for just that free uh, leadership change. Um, if mm. you're a single sport betting in Ontario, take this to the bank. If they have a line on it now that Brenda Lucky won't be reappointed in March, she should be fired now. But they're going to let the clock go out on this because as the leader of our national police force, and there's lots of blame to go around on the, the way policing was handled here, based on what she has said here, what she has said in Nova Scotia, and not done in either circumstance, um, there's a leadership change needed there. Uh, and I think the clock will lead us to that leadership change because her current appointment ends uh, late February, early March. Hard to disagree you know, one, with that. Zane, go ahead. One quick thing I'll add, Deb, is that as everything, even legal things, enter a public opinion frame and calculation first, the biggest thing on trial here is future use of the Emergencies Act. Mm -hmm. Just like we've seen with the Notwithstanding Act have a parallel conversation on political punishment or lack thereof for using it and then seeing increased usage of it, what does this, uh, this verdict, what does this entire process bottle up and mean for future uses for government of any jersey color to use the Emergencies Act? I think that's what the real thing on trial here is, is people will be observing what sort of damage it did or did not cause. And I think that is going to be one of the more longitudinal or long-term takeaways here. Yeah, and Good probably uh, probably something on, on clarity around uh, the CSIS Act. Uh, I would say is likely to be be the case. So, guys, I did a terrible job of chairing this war room. We only got through two topics, but I appreciate everybody's perspective on this. It's always fun, always informative. Zane Belchi, uh, Tom Mulcair, Tim Powers, thanks for joining News Talk today. Take care, Deb. Thanks, Deb. Thank you. All right. Coming up after the break, uh, we have a crisis of family doctors in the city of Quebec more than anywhere else in the province. We're going to talk to one of those doctors and see what the heck is going on in his province. You're listening to Deb Hutton. It's News Talk Today. News Talk Today continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. I'm Deb Hutton, your host this afternoon. Thanks for joining me. 
There has been uh, obviously story after story after story throughout this country of shortages of doctors, shortages of nurses, problems with ERs, problems with uh, getting surgeries, getting diagnostic services. But we have a particular issue in the province of Quebec, and that is that they have the highest rate of people in Canada without a family doctor, without a physician to go and visit. Joining us to talk about that and hopefully to talk about some ideas to solve that problem, not just in the province of Quebec, but throughout the country, is Dr. Michael Callan, a family physician in Saint-Luc. Welcome to News Talk today. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. So this is a long-standing problem, but it has reached, I guess, a, a crisis proportion in your province, Dr. Give us a little bit of the background on why you think you're here, because we, we do have some specific policies in Quebec, I think, uh, that aren't necessarily the case in Ontario. So just give us your perspective as, as a doctor in the system in Quebec. Well, this is uh, we're in the spot because of a series of decisions made over the last 20 years. Going back to uh, the late 1990s, uh, the PQ government encouraged family doctors to retire and actually had buyouts. This was followed by um, the idea of a PREM system, which is a licensing system for new graduates so that doctors would be encouraged to go to regions, areas that they defined as being underserviced. What has happened is over the last 20 years is that urban centres like Montreal have become more and more underserviced. And this has restricted new graduates from going into family medicine, but also going to centers where we need family doctors. We find ourselves now at a point where one quarter of family doctors are over the age of 60, nearing retirement, and we have many, many unfilled family medicine residency spots. So we have this perfect tsunami. We have not enough doctors entering the profession, too many leaving, and the work conditions are becoming unbearable. Now, you also have a system in Quebec, I believe, where uh, there is a requirement for emergency room care for family physicians. So there's something called the AMPs, and these are particular medical activities. New graduates must give 12 hours of their time for 15 years towards something other than community family practice. You mentioned emergency room. That's one of them. It may be working in a long-term care facility or working on a hospital ward. This takes away family doctors from working in the community. So if you are lucky enough to get a new doctor, your doctor's not going to be in the office a day and a half a week. Not that they're taking the time off or golfing. They're working quite hard in another underserviced area. And Quebec has relied so heavily on family doctors to fill these gaps for the last 20 years. They can't function without us. And yet, where we're needed in the community, there's just not enough of us. So trying to fix one set of problems in the healthcare system created yet another with family doctors. Exactly. You know, we talk about, you know, the system will be broken. The system has been broken for over 15 years. If you look at Montreal alone, only one, well, about two-thirds of our residents have a family doctor. That means about 33, 35, even up to 39% of residents in Montreal, depending on the region, do not have a family doctor. If we look at Quebec, we have over 800,000 people officially on a waiting list for a family doctor, 
The number is probably closer to 2 million. This is unconscionable. We talk about first-class you know, healthcare in Canada, one of our greatest prides, our national identity. Yet we're providing such sub-care. We're providing poor access. And this isn't because it developed because of COVID. This has been, you know, in the process for well over a decade. And of course, if you don't have a family physician that you can go and visit, you end up in places like the emergency room of our hospitals and the cycle continues in terms of a problem. Now, your premier uh, promised during uh, his election uh, that he would have a family doctor for everyone in Quebec. What, what was his proposal at the time to get there? This is very unclear. We certainly don't have enough people going into family practice. And yet the premier is restricting the number of positions when people come out. You know, just, just alone last year, uh, the government took away 30 spots from Montreal. So 30 fewer family doctors could come to Montreal, instead moving it to the regions. Of those 30 slots, only two of them were filled. So where did all these doctors go? Private medicine, Ontario, who knows? We lost these people. So I'm not really sure what the premier was thinking when he's not attracting people in. He's not giving jobs on the way out. And he's sort of blaming us for a lot of the problems. He talks about family doctors being lazy, not carrying enough patients. But as we just mentioned earlier, family doctors are doing a lot more than just registering patients. We're working in other aspects of the healthcare system. So I'm not really sure what his vision was. I think the math was wrong. I don't think he realized how many people really didn't have a family doctor. I'm speaking with Dr. Michael Kalin, who's a family physician in Quebec, uh, talking about the issue of, uh, well, it's unique to Quebec in that they have the highest per capita number of residents without a family doctor. It's not an issue that's unique to the province alone. We have it here in Ontario. I know we have it in BC as well. So let's talk solutions, doctor. You're in the system. Uh, you've talked about some of the government policies specifically that have contributed to this problem. So I presume undoing some of that would help. Are there other ideas? ideas that a government that is looking for solutions should consider? Absolutely. So the first thing, as we mentioned earlier, is make family medicine attractive. Make sure we fill those slots. The last two years alone, we've had over 150 unfilled family medicine positions in Quebec. Those have to be filled. Make it attractive. Number two, get rid of the prems. Give us all jobs. The new graduates, let them work. Doesn't matter if it's in the regions or Montreal. Everybody's underserviced. We need these graduates. Number three, plan for the retirements. They're coming. We know this. The doctors are aging. These are big practices. 3,000, 3,000 plus patients. We need to plan for this. Number four, nurse practitioners. Quebec is a good 20 years behind Ontario and other provinces in the nurse practitioner program. These are extremely valuable members of the primary care team. Build the multidisciplinary team. We need other people to help. The family doctor does not need to be the only access point for primary care. If you have a back injury, maybe send them to a physiotherapist first. There's a lot of point-of-care testing that can be done in pharmacies. Nursing can do so much for chronic illness. We have social workers. We have psychologists. We need to build the primary care network. You can't look at family medicine as the only solution. Having said that, we do need more doctors. Now, your first point was make it attractive. Tell me what you mean by that. Well, I went to family medicine because my father was a family doctor in Ontario. He was for almost 50 years. He loved it. He 
developed relationships with his patients over over decades. It was extremely gratifying to him, and I think it was, you know, enriching for patients as well. He cared so deeply about them. I think family medicine has that. I think we have the ability over a long period of time to develop these relationships. But when the government takes us from our offices, when the government burdens us with paperwork, insurance forms, when we're burdened with so many unnecessary things, faxes and messages, sick notes for, for employers or for schools and forms, if the government could help us with this, to take us away from being bureaucrats and more into clinicians, I think people will be attracted to family medicine again. We have the ability to really make a huge difference, but only if we take away these shackles, these shackles of bureaucracy, and are allowed to provide care, the care that the population desperately needs. Dr. Michael Kalin, I I had so many more questions for you, but I think we're going to have to call it there. Thanks so much for your time and your insight into not only the situation in Quebec, but I think uh, nationally speaking. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you so much. So coming up... Get your phone lines going. It is 1-855-633-1010. I want to talk Elf on the Shelf. It is a controversy in my family. There's a new uh, article out that says moms think it is the beginning of teaching our kids that surveillance is okay. I I just say let's have some fun and magic when our kids are little. 1-855-633-1010. Elf on the Shelf. It is our last debatable topic of the show today. I'm Deb Hutton. You're listening to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Network. You're listening to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Deb Hutton, your host this afternoon. We're going to lighten things up in the last few minutes that we have time together this afternoon. We're going to talk Elf on the Shelf, 1-855-633-1010. Give me a call. Tell me what this looks like in your house or why you do not have an Elf in the Shelf in your house. 1-855-633-1010. So Christina the Elf arrives at the Hutton the Hutton Hudak household, that's hard to say, Tonight, she will be there in the morning when my girls get out of bed. Uh, And she is there until Christmas Eve day when she returns permanently to the North Pole until next year at December the 1st. It has been controversial in our house, I will say. My husband is of the view that it is just a big pain in the butt. The number of times one of us wake up in the middle of the night and realize, Christina, the elf has not moved from her position on Tuesday to her position on Wednesday because, of course, what happens with the elf is she monitors what's happening with the kids and in the household. She flies to the North Pole every night. She reports to Santa Claus, and she returns the next day to a different position in the house to watch from another location. And so it is, it's a lot of work for mom and dad to to make sure that in our household, Christina the elf goes and, and finds a position she, when she returns. I will also say that I forgot on a couple of occasions to let Christina know that we were uh, heading to our farm in Niagara. And so Christina was not able to find us in Niagara, in fact, uh, returned to Toronto. So that was on me. I told my children I had forgotten to tell Christina, so that's why she didn't show up where we were. one 855 Listen, I, as much as it's a pain in the butt, 
I think it is part of the magic of Christmas. My kids are uh, 8 and 15. The older one obviously has a different view of Christmas than the younger one. But those few years where Christmas magic is, is just beyond anything you can imagine are fantastic. They are, they're just, they're wonderful. Seeing Christmas through your children's eyes. I say anything that brings greater joy to our children is good with me. 1-855-633-1010. It's also a tradition. And if Christmas isn't about tradition and and those family memories, then I don't know what it is about. I mean, I obviously there's there's <laughs> there's the core of what Christmas is, but in terms of what we do as parents for our kids, it's about those traditions that they will take with them to their own families and that they will remember. 1-855-633-1010. So there's an article that caught my attention, which is one of the reasons I wanted to talk Elf on the Shelf today. And it's parents who are flat out refusing. Unlike my husband, not just saying, listen, it's a lot of work. It's hard to find creative solutions to where the elf goes. I keep saying Christina because that happens to be our elf's name, as I said. But there's others who have made it uh, just completely disagree with the concept. Those that say spying as a behavioral tool is wrong. Mom and dad should be in charge, not some elf who is part of your discipline for the month of December. There are those that say some kids wonder why they don't have an elf. It's an issue of equity if other families have an elf. There apparently are kids who get traumatized if they touch the elf. Part of the magic of the elf is that you cannot touch him or her that if you do, the magic fails. And it has happened and people have touched it, but most parents are creative in how they figure out explaining to their children that Christina, in our case, can can return to the North Pole and, and re, re, I don't know what the word is, get her magic back again. And there are those, which I started out the show talking about, who say that teaching kids that surveillance on their on their activities is okay. I say, let the elf bring the magic of Christmas. It's one more thing that we all have to do. But man, it's amazing when the kids come down the stairs in the morning as they will tomorrow and say, I wonder where Christina is. Let's go Clinette and Mississauga. Welcome to News Talk today. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, good job. Uh, the, I want to see that my granddaughter is 12 years old. And she lived with us and my daughter. And my daughter do that every night, move uh, the help around. And my granddaughter is really looking forward for that. Yeah, it is e- magical. Even at 12, I mean, my daughter at 15, it's still part of the fun. Uh, we open an advent calendar every morning. It, it is just, it, it extends the Christmas season for us in a very meaningful way. Thanks for the call, Claudette. You're quite welcome. Let's go to Andrew in Montreal. Andrew, are you pro-elf, anti-elf? I like the elf. I didn't have the elf when I grew up as a kid, I guess, a uh, different time. But um, we we enjoyed the elf quite a bit. And my kids are older now, and it's amazing what this elf will do on his own. Uh, I don't know what this other person was talking about, the parents moving the elf around. Ours moves around by itself. Oh, uh, you have the special magic elf. Yes. That's excellent. Uh, do you miss it now that your kids are older? Uh, we, it still happens. Oh, it still happens. <laughs> yeah. I love yeah, that my answer. My daughter sees it and she goes, oh, look, it moves. I said, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. 
this weird little green elf. He just does stuff by himself. <laughs> Thanks so much for the call, uh, Andrew. Let's go to Kathy in Toronto. Pro-elf, anti-elf, Kathy. Pro-elf. All right. So when I was three years old, which is about 57 years ago, I had an elf butt on the tree. And my parents told me that when Santa Claus came down the chimney, the elf would tell Santa Claus if I had been a good girl or a bad girl. And I used to take the elf off the tree and sit in the windowsill and tell the elf that I was a good girl. I listed all the things that I did that were good. Wow, you are you are a pre-elf elf. Yeah, you can imagine that my father <laughs> wished he had copyrighted. Yeah, I know, bet. 50 years ago. And every year I still tell the elf how I've been a good girl. Uh, that's amazing. See that that's for me it's it's part of the tradition. It's part of what our kids take away. It's those things that remember. And Kathy, I won't do the math, but she pretty much told us how old she was. And she remembers it after all those years. Anything we can do to make the Christmas season all the more magical, I think, is is just amazing. And I, and I say it just people who say it's too much work or that it's it's not a good parenting tool. I say it's only twenty four days of the entire year, and instead of thinking of it as a as a disciplinary tool. Uh, let's think of it as something else. I'm going to go to April only because my screener says April is anti-elf. You got 30 seconds quickly, April. Why? I am anti-elf because I feel that it's not just a one-month thing, and there is no such thing as a bad kid. It's just bad behaviors, and every kid still deserves everything that ha- that their parents can give them. There is no bad kids, and an elf can't tell you whether they're good or bad. All right. Thank you for that, April. I say bah humbug to April. Bring the magic of Christmas any way you can. Extend the season, not only for kids, but for mom and dad. I will figure out, uh, unlike Andrew, our our elf does move with mom and dad. So I will figure out between now and tomorrow morning at 6 a.m., where Christina the Elf will be. Thanks for joining me today. I'm off tomorrow. Uh, Graham Richardson from CTV Auto will be in this chair. I will speak to you on Friday. Thanks for joining Deb Hutton. It's iHeart Radio Network.